This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we just pray that you help us to understand this passage, but more than just understand it, to apply it seriously to our lives. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> I'm reading this book on uh, trauma and depression. That someone recommended I read? But anyway, I'm reading this book. Oh yeah, anyway, in the book it says that the greatest suffering comes from the lies we tell ourselves. Now, I was thinking about that quote when I was uh, reading the book and preparing for the sermon. I was thinking, you know, what is the lie that we tell ourselves that leads to the greatest suffering? And I think that lie must be that we have a saving faith when we don't have a saving faith. If we tell us ourselves a lie that we have a living faith, but actually it's a dead faith. And that lie causes the greatest suffering because that suffering is not just for this life, but it's for eternity. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been studying the book of James. And in James chapter 1, basically two main messages came through. So if you look at the slide here, the first message was the danger of not persevering through suffering, not enduring suffering. And the second danger was not being a doer, but rather being only a listener or a forgetter of God's word. So in chapter 2 verse 1, it continues on by saying, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here's a good seat for you. But say to the poor man, You stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges of evil thoughts? Now at the end of last week's passage, the doer was what? Meant to do? Oh, the next slide. What was the doer meant to do? The doer is meant to look after the poor, look after the weak, look after the orphans and the widows in their distress. But instead of doing the looking after the poor, they're actually doing the opposite. They're discriminating against the poor and showing favoritism to the rich. Now these people are visibly rich and visibly poor, right? So you come to church and one guy's wearing his Armani or his Gucci and his, uh, I don't know, all the other expensive brands, but... But the, the, the literal Greek word is he's wearing bright, shiny clothes. So it's very visible that he's rich. Whereas the other person in the translation is wearing shabby clothes. He's very obviously poor. And for the rich person, when he comes into church, he is given high honor. Preferential treatment, the five-star treatment, is a bit like, you know, you go to the restaurant and the martyr there gives you the best seat by the window. But the poor shabby person is treated with contempt and disdain and dishonor. Sit by my feet, right? He's given the seat by the toilet. Now, if you look at these two passages, these two examples, which are real-life examples in James's time, they're not hypothetical situations. These are obviously things which have happened before. James then says, Have you not 
discriminate among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And the answer is yes. Because part of the instruction to be a doer last week was to not be polluted by the world, but now they become polluted because they are thinking the thoughts of the world, the evil sinful thoughts rather than God's wisdom. Now I remember on a personal level, I had a friend of mine who was a year of me in school and he went to university, he was still a year of me, he did medicine, came out, became a doctor, became a specialist. And another mutual friend of ours who used to meet together, we used to play soccer together, we played golf together, we did all sorts of things together, we don't, but we don't see him anymore. So this friend of mine said, you know, this friend of ours, he's moved beyond us. Right? He's, he's, he's moved beyond us now, you know. He doesn't want to mix with us because we're just poor people. I mean, relatively poor people. He only mixes with the very, very super rich, the other specialists and the CEOs and the other people like that. And the reason is because there's no benefit in meeting with us. What can he get from us? He can't get more clients. We're not particularly rich. It's not worth his time. And the same way, that is the way that we treat the poor and the rich. Because, you know, what can you get from the poor person? You really can't get anything. But the rich person, he or she can treat you to a really good meal. They can give you prestige or influence or connections. And here in the church, God's church, in James's time, that was exactly what was happening. And unfortunately, that is the attitude that we have in churches as well. I have another friend of mine who works in a big church in the IT department. He was saying that he was very sad because in this big church, they actually track how much money each person spends in the congregation. I don't know how they do it, but if you give electronically and things like that, people have an idea how much you spend. So what they do is, the people who spend more money, they deliberately give those people more attention. It's the 80-20 rule. You know, in any business, 20% of your customers will give you 80% of your revenue. So you better pay attention to those 20%. And it's the same thing in church. So the people who give more money in church, this church will deliberately give more attention to them. But that's not godly, right? That's not the right thing to do. I've even heard of pastors who, you know, if you're a rich person and you call up for a meeting, they have no problem meeting you. But if you're poor... They don't have time for you. But the problem is, that is exactly what James said last week in being polluted by the evil values of the world. And that's why he says that they are judging with evil thoughts, with evil intentions. What can I get from this person rather than what should I do to help this person because God has told me to do so. Now the passage then goes on and the argument or logic develops in verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in, nature, in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by law, the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit sorry if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder you have become a lawbreaker 
speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now as we look at this passage, we have some questions, because if you're doing the Bible overview, or you've heard the Reformation talks, we've learned that the Old Testament law cannot save. We don't obey the Old Testament law because it is by works, and works will never save us. So I, I, I made up this diagram, if you have a look at this diagram up here, and you'll see that if you follow the Old Testament law, try to be saved by works, you end up outside the crown, you're outside the kingdom of God, you cannot be saved by obedience to the law because we are imperfect and we will never be able to obey the law. But rather, what happens is, next slide, as Christians, we are saved by faith. Faith in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross which brings us forgiveness. But that does not mean that we don't obey anything. The passage here says that we have to obey the royal law. The royal law is different from the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law was about circumcision, not eating pork, not eating certain sorts of food, celebrating religious festivals, sacrificial systems. But the royal law, next slide, is Jesus reinterpreting the Old Testament law for us, for Christians today. So there's no more food laws in the royal law. Jesus told Peter in Acts chapter 10. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure and unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Again, there is no more ceremonial law. In Colossians chapter 2, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Again, there's no more circumcision. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. So the royal law is different from the Old Testament law. And what is the royal law? The royal law is... Next slide. To love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor as yourself. So if that's the royal law, then you shouldn't show favoritism against the poor, to discriminate against the poor. Murder is not loving your neighbor as yourself. Because if I love you as myself, I, I will not murder you, right? Adultery is not loving your neighbor as yourself. If I love you, I will not sleep with your wife or your husband. In the same way, discrimination against the poor is not loving your neighbor as, your, as yourself. So in God's eyes, adultery... Murder, discriminating against the poor, is the same sin. It's not loving your neighbor as yourself. And if you do so, it says, you will receive, in verse 13, judgment without mercy because you have not been merciful. 
You see, what we did in our responsive reading was to see that if you receive mercy from God, love from God, forgiveness from God, then if you don't show mercy and love to other people, then God will judge you instead of showing you mercy and love. So then, you should not discriminate against the poor and show favoritism to the rich because it is against being a doer, against the royal law and against the love and mercy that God has shown you. So I remember once in my workplace, there was a a guy that joined us for a while and he was a person that went to church very regularly. He went to Bible study. He had very good Bible knowledge. But unfortunately, he was very unpopular in the workplace because he was a very self-righteous, arrogant, and quite a, just a, not a very nice person, right? I mean, I was a Christian, he was a Christian, but I didn't even get along with him, right? He was not a loving person at all. He was not a loving person. You could not say of him he loved his neighbor as himself. He, he just didn't... There was no love in this person at all. I mean, maybe he loved himself, but he didn't love anybody else. Can such a person really be a Christian then, according to James chapter 2? A person who doesn't love his neighbor as himself, can that person really be a Christian... At the end of time, will that person receive judgment or mercy? The argument continues and the logic continues in verse 14, which is the heart of the book of James. Right? So this passage, 14 to 17, is supposed to be the heart or the center of the book of James. And not just because it's close to the middle, but because it's the key to the whole argument of James. Right? What good is, good is it in verse 14, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but has no deeds. Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. If you look at, uh, at the slide here, The phrase that keeps being repeated is, it's okay, I highlighted it for you so it's very clear. It's what good is it? What good is it? It literally is what is the profit or something. It's like a commercial term. What profit is it to have faith without deeds? And he gives an example. He says, okay, imagine if you're a poor person and you're in church and your brother comes up to you and uh, you're... Obviously, it's Singapore, so you're warm all the time. But imagine you're out you know, in some northern country and it's cold and you're hungry and you're, you know, you've got no clothes. And the person comes up to you who's a rich person, presumably. He's got more than enough clothes and he's got lots of food. And he says to you, oh, go in peace, brother or sister. Keep warm and be well fed. And then they walk off. And the question is, what good is it to you? What profit is it to you if someone comes up to you and says, oh, you know, wish you well, keep warm, be well fed, and he gives you nothing, she gives you nothing. There is no profit, there is no good. No good comes to you. And in the same way, 
that answers the first two questions. What profit, what good is faith without deeds? What good in terms of salvation does this faith give you? Nothing. This faith is worthless if there is faith without deeds. And that's why in verse 17, the conclusion is, uh, next slide, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Dead faith. And James then goes on to three evidences to show why this is true, why it is dead faith. So the first evidence is an example of demons. Verse 18, it says, But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Now, Jesus, when he was going through and doing his ministry, uh, met many, many demons. And many of the demons recognized Jesus. They confessed the identity of Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, verse 24, sorry, verse 23, says, Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Mark chapter 5, he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus has said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. So here we have two different spirits, two different demons. One recognizes that Jesus is the Holy One of God. The other one recognizes that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. They recognize Jesus' divinity, His identity, His Sonship. But does that acknowledgement, does that faith save? No, it doesn't save because that faith does not lead to deeds or action. It only leads to fear. So if you look up here in this diagram, I thought I'd create this diagram for you. It's more helpful, right? So you look here in the diagram. There's a difference between believing that something is true, believing in your head intellectually or verbally saying, uh, like the Apostles' Creed, right? That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He rose from the dead. But there's no action that issues out from that faith. And James says, that is the faith of demons. That's, that's the faith of demons. Believing in something, trusting, depending, relying in something, will always be seen in your action and the way that you live. You know, I was meeting out with someone last week. Okay, this is not my sermon notes, right? But just, this came to me. This person has just become a vegan. Okay? Anyway, my family has talked about it. So this person become a vegan. So, you know, if you believe that meat is bad for you and you really believe that meat is bad for you and vegetables are good for you, but you still go on eating meat, then what does that show about your belief? You don't really believe it, right? You're not living it out. In the same way, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you believe He's God, you believe He tells you to do certain things, you believe He showed you love, then you must 
Show it in the way that you love and treat other people. Because, next slide, if you only have faith alone, then it is just like the faith of the demons. And the faith of the demons cannot save. The second evidence comes in the example of Abraham. So in Abraham, in verse 20 to 24, he says, You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture confirms, has fulfilled, and says, Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Now Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation and God had given him these great promises. And key to that promise was your children will be like the multitude of the stars in the sky. Abraham waited one year, two years, ten years, twenty-five years and God hadn't fulfilled his promise. It was only when Abraham was a hundred years old that God gave him one son, Isaac. Now I've got two kids, two sons of my own, and I imagine that I don't want anything bad to happen to them, right? I mean, most parents don't want bad things to happen to their kids. God instructed Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, after waiting 25 years at 100 years old, to sacrifice Isaac. And what did Abraham do? Abraham, in obedience to faith, went to sacrifice Isaac, but God gave him a substitute in a ram. Now, this shows that faith, the faith of Abraham, could be seen in his actions. Because he listened to God and in faith was willing to give up the very thing that God had promised him, even though it seemed as if physically God was actually going against the promise that he gave. In the same way, this passage is saying that you cannot have faith without it being authenticated with deeds. See, if I say to you, there's a bomb in the church. Get out now, right? See where the exit signs are? Make your way oddly out of the building. And you all just sit there. You all just look at me. And you say, yeah, yeah, we believe what you're saying, Andrew. You know, we have faith in what you're saying. We trust what you're saying. But your actions do not show that you believe what I'm saying because you're all just sitting there. In the same way, Faith which is not reflected in deeds, deeds of loving your neighbor as yourself, deeds in being a doer of what God wants you to do, is not real living faith. It is fake faith. It is dead faith. Now the next example, the last example, is the example of Rahab. In verse 25, in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute 
Consider righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So here we have a very different person from Abraham, much further down in history. The Israelites have gone out of the promise uh, of Egypt, wandered around the desert for a generation. Now they're going to the promised land, right? So look at the uh, picture. They come out of the desert, and the first place they go to is Jericho. And as they go into Jericho, they send out scouts, and the scouts are discovered, they're pursued by the inhabitants, and Rahab, the prostitute, gives them shelter, sends them in another way from where the people chasing them are going. Rahab is completely different from Abraham. She's a woman. Abraham is a man. She is a Gentile. Abraham is a Jew. She didn't hear the voice of God. She just did it out of her own accord. Abraham, God spoke to him personally. But both of them show that faith and works complement and come together. Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac. Rahab was willing to give shelter to the spies in danger to herself. And what this passage is saying very clearly is, you either have the faith of Rahab and Abraham, which is seen in action issued out from faith, or you have the faith of demons, which is just faith alone. And verse 26 is the final conclusion, right? Next slide. As the body without spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Okay, you can click it once, I know it's got action on. Okay. So what this is saying is, you don't have to be a doctor to know that if there is a body, but there is no breathing, the body is dead. You know, that's it. You don't need uh, any blood tests. You don't need to feel the pulse. The person is dead. In the same way, if you have faith, but no deeds, then your faith is dead as well. Now, as you look at this passage, someone made a point to me a while ago and said, you know, Christians, we're just good at judging one another. You know, people at church, we're just judging one another. So, because people are judging one another, therefore you do good things or you do things. But this passage is saying that we don't do these things because we're worried about other people judging us or looking at us or thinking that we're not real Christians or, you know, People are looking at me, so I better do all these things. But this passage is saying that your deeds flow from a living faith in Jesus Christ. You do it not because someone else is looking at you. You do it because you know that Jesus Christ died for you and God loves you. And this is how He wants you to live. I was just talking to someone in the first service. They were saying, you know, one of, sometimes one of you, many of you will go overseas to study. Nobody is watching you. Nobody is watching you. So maybe you get up to mischief. You know, maybe you decide not to go to church regularly. You do all sorts of bad things. That's okay. That's up to you, right? Because no one is there to watch you or to judge you. But if you have a living faith, then you will do the things of faith. 
Not because there's someone else watching you, but because of the reality of the faith in your life. The second thing that I want to, I guess, mention also, is that sometimes people come up to me and they complain, you know, they say, oh, I did this good thing for somebody. They weren't very grateful. They didn't do something bad to me. But that's exactly the sort of worldly thinking that leads us to give favoritism to the rich and to discriminate against the poor. Because when you help a poor person, they can't help you. I know that there have been some helping hand brothers who've come here and people help them and they feel that they're not very grateful or they left or whatever. But why do you help the person? You help that person because you want something back. You wanted a thank you, you wanted a recognition, you wanted something. But the passage says, you love your neighbors yourself, not because you wanted to get something back from them, but because of your faith. And that's very important because if you're always thinking, I'm only going to help someone if I get something back, then that's worldly thinking. That's exactly the sort of thinking that leads you only want to help people who can help you back. And that's not loving your neighbor as yourself. So in conclusion, you know, my time as a pastor, I've come across many couples and many times husbands and wives will say to each other, I love you. They'll say it to, it, to each other's face, I love you. They may even say it in front of me. But the problem is, can you verbally say, I love you, and not do acts of love? What good is that sort of love? If I say I love you and I keep sleeping around, I'm, 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 I, 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 I'm not loyal to you. If, if I say I love you, but I can't even say thank you for the dinner you cook for me, or I don't appreciate the, the dinner you cook for me, is that really love? Is that real love? Or if the wife is unable to, to be, you know, spending time with the husband and she always wants to go out and spend time with other men, is that really love? That's just a verbal love. It's love in a vacuum. It is love which is not really real. It's not living love. It's dead love. In the same way, we can come to church. We can say the Apostles' Creed. We can sing the songs. We can go to Bible study. We think we have a living faith. But a living, saving faith is not authenticated by coming to church on a Sunday. It is not confirmed because you sat in the Bible study or you said the Apostles' Creed. Those are just words. A living faith shows itself by loving your neighbor as yourself. So on the end of two questions, uh, first question is, when was the last time you showed your faith in deeds? in loving your neighbor as yourself, in speech, in action, in deeds. Right? The next question is, how is your faith? Is your saving faith a faith that is shown in deeds and works? Is, 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 is that your faith? Is it a living faith that is actually seen in your actions? Or is it a dead faith with no deeds? I began the sermon by saying 
the quote from that book I was reading at the moment about trauma and depression, right? That the greatest suffering comes from the lies we tell ourselves. So the question is, is your faith a lie you tell yourself? Because that's essentially the question of today's passage, right? Is There were people in, in the time of James who were lying to themselves that they had faith, but there was no faith in their life. And James is saying, look, do you have a, a living faith which is seen in your actions, or do you have a faith which is dead and there is no good and it's worthless faith? Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that we may truly understand your passage, and not just understand your passage, but to see the great importance of what is being discussed. And help us to ask ourselves the big question of our faith. Is it a living faith, a saving faith, that is seen in our deeds, in loving our neighbor as ourselves? And dear Father, we pray for each and every one of us here today that we would truly have that living faith. That we would not just be those who come to church and to verbally assent to the Apostles' Creed, but rather we would live out the implications of trusting, relying, and committing ourselves to Jesus Christ, your Son, as our Lord and our Saviour. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.